By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello, and welcome to this, our first ever episode of Behind the Bonds, connecting the dots on corporate credit. I'm Tanya Hall. I'm a research writer based in London. Hi, I'm Jeff Cruzan. I'm one of Tanya's colleagues based in New York. We're going to be your co-hosts for this brand new Moody's podcast. We hope Behind the Bonds will give you a deeper understanding of the world of corporate finance, from airlines to pipelines, from computer chips to potato chips. Each month, we'll be talking to Moody's corporate finance analysts from around the world to get their views on the big themes shaping credit across industries. We'll look at how companies are adapting to the challenges of climate change, digital transformation, and the post-pandemic world. And for this inaugural episode, we're exploring the world of high-yield or speculative-grade companies. Speaking of leveraged finance, we saw a lot of high-yield debt issuance during the pandemic. My colleague Suzanne Miller, a research writer based in New York, has been talking with three of our top experts on leveraged finance, liquidity, and private equity. They'll discuss how things look today for the companies with lower credit quality. After that, we'll talk with another of our experts about covenants, that form of protections for bond and loan investors, and how they've been changing. But first, let's hand things over to Suzanne Miller. Suzanne, thanks for being here. Thank you, Jeff. The coronavirus pandemic led to a surge of rating downgrades in 2020 and a jump in the number of CAA-rated companies. So these are firms with the highest credit risk short of an actual default, and the size of this universe is a risk barometer of the broader credit market. The pandemic also fueled a jump in market liquidity across the rating spectrum as governments, most notably the U.S., jumped in to support the market. So today we're seeing different stages of recovery play out across regions, largely tied to differences in companies' ability to issue debt. I'm here today with Chris Paget in New York to talk about the U.S., Richard Etheridge in London to talk about Europe, and Anlisa Dicharya in Hong Kong, SAR, to talk about Asia-Pacific. So let's start with the role that liquidity is playing in leveraged finance, and more specifically, the CAA population. Are we better or worse off today than before the pandemic? Chris, can you start us off? We are actually approaching the same as before the pandemic. That share has really fallen back. You know, more specifically, it was about 17% at the peak, and it's about 12% currently. Liquidity, alongside some other important factors like the vaccine, the increase in demand, and healthy corporate earnings, have supported a faster economic recovery in the U.S. I would note, though, that while this population has reverted back to its pre-pandemic levels, thanks to the upgrades that we've been doing over the last several months, it has led to a borrower-friendly market where higher leverage could still hinder flexibility for those weaker, smaller companies going forward. I think Richard's seeing something a little bit different in EMEA, so I will pass the baton to Richard. You're right. We are slightly slower in our recovery in EMEA. And there are differences across the region with in terms of lifting of restrictions and government support mechanisms as well. So hence the recovery has been generally more uneven across the region. Despite the strong liquidity support in the euro area from the European Central Bank and others such as the Bank of England as well. So as a result, the share of companies rated CAA still remains much higher than the pre-pandemic levels. We're looking at 12.8% 
in September 2021 against uh, 7% before the pandemic. And it's also worth remembering that the high liquidity that we see in the market has also resulted in higher leverage levels for many issuers. And that will continue to impair on the recovery of weaker players, as Chris also mentioned. So in other words, strong market liquidity support is paradoxically leading to an increase in higher risk companies in EMEA. Annalisa, what's your perspective in APAC? So it is a slightly different story in this region. Central bank support has been more fragmented across Asia Pacific than in other regions. And we've certainly seen a shift in our ratings distribution and credit deterioration across our high-yield portfolio since the pandemic began. And lower-rated companies are experiencing a slower climb back up that credit ladder than we've seen in the U.S. anemia. And I think it's because of a weakening investor sentiment, particularly for the riskier credits, and also access to funding being less predictable, given some of the ongoing market volatility. So in this region, the share of CAA and lower-rated companies has more than doubled since the pandemic began. And we continue to circle around 10 to 12% of our rated coverage since the start of the year. And that rated coverage includes around 145 companies. But given some of the credit tightening in China, that percentage has likely inched up even a bit higher in recent weeks. So given the more fragmented state of liquidity and EMEA and APAC, how soon will the CAA population return to 2019 levels? Richard, what are you seeing in EMEA? Well, we actually still have decent levels of liquidity in the market over here, and that's increased the number of upgrades we've made this year as well, although not to the pace that uh, we're seeing in the US. However, the number of upgrades actually out of the CAA category has been rather limited this year. In fact, there's only been six of them. And so we would expect the share of CAAs and below in EMEA to remain pretty elevated because the cheap and abundant liquidity really helps them to operate despite the fact they may have unsustainable capital structures. So contrary to what we're seeing in the U.S., it sounds like the number of lowest rated companies may actually remain elevated for some time in EMEA. Annalisa, is this the same situation in APAC? Certainly the liquidity extension over here has been a bit more tepid than what we've seen and what Richard has seen in EMEA. And, you know, frankly, it's, it's really quite rare for the CAA cohort to actually tap the bond market. So we've seen very few companies climb out of that category. Most continue to have untenable capital structures. They've got limited liquidity. And those factors actually drove them initially into default anyways. So I think as a result, barring any recapitalization events, improved liquidity or better access to the capital markets, it'll be difficult for that CAA and lower population to improve their credit quality. So given the level of defaults in the U.S., Moody's has done extensive research about recoveries. Chris, what are the implications for debt recovery with so many borrowers facing heavily leveraged futures? Well, for those companies that default, we have long expected subpar recoveries. Defaulted companies from the 2020 pandemic-induced default cycle so far had about a 45% family recovery rate, and that was pretty materially skewed down by the particularly vulnerable oil and gas sector. Without oil and gas, the family recovery rate for what we have called the COVID cohort would have been closer to the historic average of around 50%. What's notable about this default cycle is it was relatively short, which helped both the number of defaults and family recoveries that remained pretty close to the long-term average. Recoveries, though, are likely to remain lower 
for almost all types of debt instruments, in other words, those leveraged loans and high-yield bonds, when compared to previous default cycles. And that's driven by the change within balance sheet structures to a more senior-secured loan composition, and that puts pressure on both loan and bond recoveries. So it sounds like we're hearing that while companies' liquidity may be high, recoveries will be more problematic. What then do recovery prospects actually tell us about default trends in the months ahead? So defaults, they peaked in EMEA at 5% in December 20, and that's lower than the global level. And since then, we've seen the spec rate default rates uh, steadily declining, and we're back down to roughly half that level, so 2.4% in September. Those levels are back to those more in line with the long-term average as well. And we're expecting defaults to remain around the 2% level over the next 12 months. Annalisa, are you also seeing defaults fall back in APEC? So in Asia-Pacific, we also recorded a record number of defaults last year, and that left our trailing 12-month spec grade default rate for year-end 2020 just under 8%. Through June of this year, the 12-month rolling measure came in around 55 to 6%, which did show some improvement. But since then, there's been a significant deterioration in Chinese property developers' liquidity positions, including China Evergrande, and the operating environment has deteriorated for that sector. And also, a few more Chinese developers even defaulted in October. So turbulence in the offshore market has also increased refinancing risks, with tight credit conditions likely to continue over the next 6 to 12 months, particularly in China, and generally weak investor sentiment. There'll likely be some weekly position companies, lower-rated companies, that will still be challenged to access the market. Maybe I can turn it over to Chris to speak a little bit about what's going on in the U.S. market. We have probably a vastly different number of spec rate issuers in the U.S. versus Asia-Pacific or even EMEA, although there's probably more relationship between EMEA and the United States. That being said, the number of corporate default rates here plunged 63% quarter over quarter. It was just a fraction of the 57 defaults that we recorded this time a year ago. And in fact, it's the lowest we've seen since the fourth quarter of 2014. So the 12-month speculative grade default rate finished in September at 2.5%, which is quite remarkable given the long-term average is 4.7%, and it's even expected to fall further by this time next year, down to 2.1%. Finally, let's turn to private equity firms in the high-yield market. PE firms, as they are known, manage funds that invest in privately owned companies, typically leveraged buyout transactions involving very high debt levels. What are the credit implications of the PE market's rapid growth? So private equity obviously had a rather boom in the last couple of years. And uh, actually over the last couple of years, we've seen the ratings of private equity-owned transactions actually moving more towards the B3 level rather than the normal B2. But actually the last few months, we've seen that trend starting to reverse a bit, following on from the pandemic. That said, credit quality overall remains weaker than pre-pandemic, which is no real surprise. And if you look at the percentage of B3 negatives that we have, we're still quite a bit higher than the pre-pandemic level at 16.5% compared to 12% before. And also on top of that, we still have roughly a quarter of the spec rate issuers having a negative outlook. So while that's close to the pre-pandemic levels, it still highlights the risk of potential credit deterioration. So Chris, I'm guessing this is a pretty similar to your area. 
This remarkable level of liquidity has been a boon for private equity in the U.S. And so given their predisposition for leverage, their ratings are concentrated at the low end of the spec rate universe. So we believe those U.S. leveraged buyouts are going to remain vulnerable should circumstances change in the future. For example, our distress list defined as B3 negative and lower is about 65 to 70 percent private equity portfolio companies at any particular juncture. I'm going to turn to Annalisa. It's interesting to note how much different the private equity activity is in Asia. You know, private equity led deals here are not prominent in Asia. There have only been a handful or two of PE-led rated transactions. And frankly, historically, these deals have been structured with a reasonable amount of leverage. And I think that's very unlike the deals that Richard and Chris have seen in EMEA in the U.S. So PE really isn't driving market dynamics in the Asia Pacific as yet, but it would help develop and diversify the Asian high yield market. And we've seen that happen in EMEA in the U.S. But for now, Asia Pacific is still largely a bond market shaped by the China property sector. Thank you so much, Chris, Richard, and Annalisa, for your insights today about leveraged finance, liquidity trends, and what this means for credit risk. So, listeners, liquidity has helped support companies around the world through the worst of the pandemic. But it's also changed market conditions, and one place that shows up in is in covenants. Now, I'm talking to one of my other research writer colleagues, Richard Barley. First of all, Richard, before we get started, one thorny question. What exactly is a covenant? Well, covenants basically are a form of protection for creditors. And perspective-grade companies, they're agreements embedded in loan and bond documents that define what actions a company can and can't take. So it might be around making payments to shareholders, or changing the structure of their balance sheet, for example. So I'm talking to Evan Friedman, who heads up our Covenant Research in New York, and he's got some interesting insights on this. Welcome to the podcast, Evan. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So perhaps you could just set the scene for us and talk a little bit about what the trend has been in Covenants over the last few years. Sure. Well, Covenant quality really began to deteriorate in earnest back in 2013. And simply put, investors have not been able to halt the slide. Towards the end of 2014, our North American Covenant Quality Indicator, which is effectively a barometer of covenant flexibility, first entered its weakest level, and it's barely poked its nose above there since. Did coronavirus have an effect on things? Obviously, when the pandemic started, it hit markets hard. Well, during COVID, for the first time in a long time, investors had a bit of a chance to push back on covenants. And this was particularly so in the most impacted sectors. And we saw three consecutive quarters with modestly improving covenant scores. But now we're three quarters removed from that. And we've seen no lasting effect. Once the pandemic's impact on the markets began to wane, good credit conditions and lots of liquidity combined with a mandate to put money to work has simply overmatched covenants. In fact, looking at the third quarter, our indicator hit its highest level ever, meaning the covenant packages have just never been this loose. Okay, so companies have really started pushing the envelope again, I guess. What's one major weakness that's caught your eye from each region? Well, in North America, we've been highlighting the multiple ways in which looser debt and restricted payments covenants are setting up tomorrow's dividend recaps or debt finance dividends. Dividend recaps have already been on the rise for the last year, year and a half, 
in part because with multiples so high, PE firms have been cutting big equity checks when they acquire their portfolio companies. Logically, these, these firms don't want that money trapped. They want to put it to work elsewhere, and they want covenants that don't stand in the way. The most recent slate of PE-sponsored bonds is especially permissive of these types of transactions. In EMEA, we're focusing on asset sales step-downs, which allow companies to retain and control half and sometimes all of the proceeds of their asset sales, so long as they can satisfy a pre-agreed leverage ratio. Typically, those same proceeds would have to be applied to repay debt or reinvest in the business. And there's a common thread here, and that's that taking these actions when times are good leaves behind a company with more debt or fewer assets, making it more vulnerable if fortunes change. What about Asia, though? Because as our colleagues were saying, that market is a little bit different. Yeah, that's absolutely right. APAC's very different in terms of covenants as well. There are very few PE-sponsored companies which has kept some of the more aggressive provisions out of the market. There has been a weakening there, and we've been drawing attention to the relaxation of the dollar debt test, which could permit companies to incur debt even if it pressures their ongoing ability to service it. So that's interesting. It sounds like what you're saying is covenants are increasingly about gaining flexibility to take advantage when market conditions are good. Well, that's true, but actually they're gaining flexibility to take advantage when conditions are good and also bad. Issuers and creditors both understandably want the best set of terms that the market will bear, and so covenants operate on a continuum reflecting this. Right now, the pendulum has swung very wide in favor of issuers. What that means is that we're seeing documents clearing the market that work in good times, enabling borrowers to pay large dividends, keep proceeds from dispositions, but also in bad times. They won't stand in the way of asset transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries, or taking on subordinating secured debt for companies that face liquidity challenges. Essentially, with deals being oversubscribed and default rates being low, it's the investors who are making the concessions on covenants, and they're sacrificing protections rather than risking allocations. Okay, so to wrap things up here, let's bring back Chris from our first segment to tie together the credit fundamentals with Evans Covenant Insights. What's the one big takeaway for our listeners from our discussions? Evan, Could I come to you first? Sure. I mean, I would just caution investors to keep their eyes wide open. Like I said, our covenant quality indicator hit its high watermark in the third quarter, and covenant packages are especially weak in the lower-rated bonds from PE-sponsored companies. All this even as spreads continue to narrow. So what I want investors to know is that if they're not being compensated for covenant risk, even as they enable these low-rated companies to architect their own destinies. That's great. Thanks so much, Evan. And Chris, what about you? I would say because rates have really remained low, spreads narrow, most of today's highly leveraged companies have been able to manage their debt service obligations. But should rates rise or the fixed income market become more risk averse, these companies could begin to struggle and that would put pressure on their ability to invest in their businesses and refinance when necessary. And I think that really is probably most true in the U.S., but probably applies to the rest of the world as well. Thank you both. Thanks, Richard. And thanks to all our guests today. That's all we have time for. But if you want to explore these topics in detail, please visit moody's.com and check out our research. Thanks for being here. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. We would encourage you to like us on the social media platforms that you use. 
And of course, to subscribe and join us again next month for more Behind the Bonds.